Good morning, everybody. Glad you could be here on this beautiful fall day. There was a psychologist named uh, Martha M, or sorry, Ruth M, Ruth Martha Baranza, uh, and she did an experiment. She's really curious about the impact of social pressure on people and their behavior. And so the experiment that she organized was she was going to take groups of 10 high school students, put them in a room with very simple instructions. When the teacher pointed to the longest line on a chart, raise your hand. Very simple. Secretly, though, she had instructed nine of the teenagers to raise their hands when the teacher pointed to the second longest line on the chart. So the 10th student was going to be the subject of observation. And the experiment began, and the teacher started pointing to lines. And sure enough, she pointed to the second longest line. Nine hands went in the air. And invariably, this 10th student sort of just looked around like, what's going on? And then 75% of the time, they joined in and raised their hands too, even though they believed that that was the incorrect answer. So she repeated the experiment with several different groups of high schoolers, with groups of small children, groups of adolescents of various ages, and usually 75% was the average. People would raise their hands and verify a false answer. And it just goes to show the power of social pressure. People would rather compromise and fit in then stand on something they believe is true and risk being ostracized in some way. People are, are kind of pack animals in that way. And sometimes that's good, like that instinct can be conducive to survival. You look at like wolves, for instance. That pack instinct helps them to live and thrive. But then you've also got lemmings, which are these little critters that just follow one another without question off of a cliff, leaping to their doom, simply because the lemming in front of them did it as well. So it really just depends on what group you're trying to fit into, whether or not this instinct is beneficial or not. And that's kind of what we're talking about this morning as we continue this series that we started last week through the book of 1 Peter called Greater Things. We are people of the gospel. When we said yes to Jesus, we said no to this world and the things of this world, and we're granted greater things through the power of the gospel. But sometimes there's this pressure to say yes to this world that we don't belong, and sometimes we feel that pressure so strongly we may be tempted to, to raise our hands, so to speak, for falsehoods or to be people we are no longer to be. And so we're talking today about how do we live as these heavenly kinds of people, people that said yes to Jesus, as Peter calls us exiles in this world. That's where we're going to be at in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 13. If you have your Bibles with you, open those up, follow along if you like. Uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, we have our passages on the side screens as always, or you can download the FCC Monmouth app and tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner. Uh, you'll find sermon notes along with our passage pulled up, broken down, ready for you to engage with. So our question of the day, I guess if you wanted to boil it down, is how do we resist this temptation to conform and maintain our distinction as God's people in this world. And Peter has some insights for us in this section of his letter. And the first bit of advice is this. If you want to maintain your distinction, remember the greater prize that you are pursuing. That's how he begins this, this paragraph in verse 13. He says, Therefore, in light of who you are, being exiles in this world, with minds that are alert and fully sober, Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. 
So Peter is speaking to a group of believers who have started to experience societal pressures, economic pressures, trials of various kinds, he calls them, because of their faith. And they're beginning to ask, is it worth it? Is, is this faith, is this belonging to Jesus really worth the hardships that we're beginning to taste? And Peter's encouragement is, if you want to maintain this distinction and live faithfully, remember this great prize, or as he calls it, the grace that you will receive when Jesus returns. And he's talking about this gift of salvation here. And salvation is kind of a, it's a very broad, important topic. Sometimes when we talk about salvation, we talk about being saved, or getting saved, or something, and we refer to it as in sort of a past tense way. Something happens that changed us. And that is definitely part of it. The Bible talks about salvation in that past tense way. When we said yes to Jesus, our sins were forgiven, we received the gift of the Holy Spirit, we were adopted by God, we no longer belong to this world of sin and death, we were saved, past tense. But that's not the only way that the Bible talks about salvation. That's just the beginning. The Bible also talks about salvation in a present tense. We are being saved. That Holy Spirit that lives within us, He goes to work on our hearts, and inwardly we're being transformed and restored and renewed to look like a heavenly kind of people, to look more like Jesus. So salvation is this present tense thing that's happening right now in our lives. And it's also this future that we're looking forward to, what Peter references specifically when Jesus returns and he changes us. The dead are raised. Our bodies are transformed to outwardly resemble what he has been doing inwardly this entire time. It's that great hope that we have of no more sickness, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. That great hope is the completion of God's salvation project. It's this really big uh, endeavor that he has undertaken in us and for us. And with us. And what Peter is saying is keep your eyes focused on that. When you're tempted, when you're pressured, when the rest of the class raises your hands, remember this great prize that you are striving for. Because just like anything else of any worth, it's not just going to fall into your lap. There is a cooperative effort that takes place between us and God. He's not just going to thrust this transformation upon us. In some ways, it's kind of like retirement. It's actually a really good illustration because retirement is, is one of those lifelong projects that takes some, some focus. You know, some of us, we've already retired, and, and if you have, I hope it's everything that you dreamed it to be. If it's not, let me know so I can quit wasting my time. Uh, but for the rest of us, we hope to retire someday, right? We all know that it's, it's this thing waiting in the future down the road that we ought to be preparing for and actively pursuing today. But there's this thing called the present and all of the, the troubles and the trials and the needs and the distractions of the present. We ought to be planning for our financial futures, but presently the car needs new tires and the kids need new shoes and there's a sale on new furniture and so on and so forth. There are a number of distractions, no shortage of opportunities to spend that money today on the present which is a sad re thing to happen because if we are so focused on the present and the challenges and the trials and the distractions of today without any forethought of what's coming, that day is going to get here and we will not be ready. What a tragedy, right? And that's sort of what Peter is warning this church about. He says the day is coming when Jesus will return, when this work of God will be completed, when everything you've hoped for will be offered before you, will you be ready for it? 
And the implicit warning there is not if you are distracted by the things of today with all that glitters and gleams. If we start to live like the rest of the world, pursuing what the rest of the world pursues, dreaming what the rest of the world dreams, it's only a matter of time before our lives begin to look like the rest of the world. And we bear eerie similarity to those lemmings that just follow one another off the cliff to their doom. But it's when we have an alert mind, a sobriety about us to go, wait a minute, this is not my place. This is not my home. These people are not my people. These ways are not my ways. Their goals are not my goals. I'm striving for a greater prize, something that requires something different of me than all that glitters and gleams with different priorities and different efforts and different energies. That's the kind of alert mind Peter is encouraging the church and us today by extension to possess. Remember, we're not chasing after the same things that the rest of the world chases. There's a greater prize offered to us that requires a different way of life. So if you want to maintain your distinction in this world as big old bunch of holy weirdos was the term we coined. coined, coined? It's Illinois. We coined last week. If you want to be those exiles... Remember that greater prize. Have it on the forefront of your mind. There's another word of advice Peter gives us too. Remember the greater family that you belong to if you want to maintain your distinction. We keep reading in verse 14. It says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, Be holy. Because I am holy. Peter is writing to a group of people who formerly did not belong to God's people. They were Gentiles. They, they were outside the Old Testament covenant. And as Gentiles, there's a good chance that they didn't really understand exactly how their lives were lived in rebellion to God. They didn't understand that their sin had separated from Him. They didn't really even know who He was. But all that has changed because they've accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their eyes have been opened to the truth. And they're no longer outsiders. Do you remember what, what they got called in verse 14? They're children. They're part of the family. They've been brought in. And as children who now know the Father, children who now know the truth and whose eyes are open and they see clearly, the instruction is, don't keep living like you don't know any better. Don't pretend to be ignorant because you are fully aware now of the truth. Children are expected to be obedient when the rules are made clear. I have a five-year-old son. He is vivacious, we'll say, and energetic. Uh, and I was home for lunch. It was a Thursday afternoon. And I, my wife got a call from the school that he had been jumping in puddles, and which he's not supposed to do. Uh, and so he was sat in timeout, and then when he was released, he just went right back and started jumping in puddles again. So he got in a little bit of trouble, and he was a little wet, and they wanted us to be aware of that when he came home. And so when we picked him up, we had the talk, like, hey, buddy, you know, you got to pay attention, follow the rules, and so on. There was a little sternness, but it was really more of an informational kind of thing. Don't do this again. But then Monday came. And it was time for school again. And it had rained the night before. So before we walked out the door to go to school, I sat him down and I said, Buddy, listen, there are going to be all kinds of fresh new puddles on the playground today. Don't you jump in them. You remember what happened last time? That's just a warning. You're going to be in a lot more trouble if you jump in puddles today because you know better now. 
Whenever a child is in the know, obedience is expected, and it's right. And you and I today, when we said yes to Jesus, to this gospel, our eyes were open to who God is, to the tremendous love He has for us, but also to the expectation that He calls us to. We are children in the know, and obedience is proper and rightfully expected from us. We are expected to live up to the family code. Every family has its own unique code, the rules of the house, right? You all lived under them. You all possessed them if you had children. It's different from house to house, but one thing remains true no matter what. The rules of your house know no jurisdiction. It's not like they don't matter anymore just because your kids went over to Jimmy's house across the street or to their friend's house on the other side of the town. We don't live by those rules. We live by our family rules. A good example of this, uh, when I was a boy, there was a video game that came out that I was not allowed to play. It was called Mortal Kombat. And it was gruesome and bloody and violent, and there was no reason a child my age should have been playing that game, which is exactly why I wanted to play that game. And I knew it existed because there was this arcade cabinet of it at the skating rink where I grew up. But the rule was I was not to play this game. But my friend Jason... They had different rules at his house. And Jason had a Sega Game Gear, which was like a Game Boy, but really big and obnoxious. And you could go outside, and you could sit, and you could play your video game. And so I was at Jason's house, and we were outside, and you know what we were doing? We were playing Mortal Kombat. And we were beating the digital blood and snot out of, uh, out of opponents, and there were appendages being ripped off. It was entirely way over the top. No kid should be playing this game. But we were so engrossed in it that I didn't notice my mom pull up to come pick me up. And we were so enthralled at the digital violence in front of us that I didn't notice her come over and start to look over our shoulder until she said, hey, what you playing? As if she didn't know any better. And I heard about it when we got home because the family code is binding and knows no jurisdiction. It doesn't matter what the rules are at Jason's house. We don't live by Jason's rules. We live by our rules. And Peter is insisting the same thing upon us. We live by a certain family code. It is the code of holiness as God has demonstrated it and defined it. And it doesn't matter if we live in somebody else's house right now as exiles and foreigners the code knows no jurisdiction. It is binding. And it is rightful that he should expect children that belong to his family, children in the know, to be obedient to that family code. And it takes a different mindset and a different set of priorities to maintain holiness in this world. It takes an alert and sober mind, you might say, that recognizes this is not my home. These are not my people. These are not our ways. We belong to a greater family. If you want to maintain your distinction, remember that family that you belong to. But if you need a little extra motivation, Peter has some more advice for us. Remember the greater authority that you answer to. This one kind of dovetails or spins off of that family motif. Look at what Peter goes on to say as we keep reading in verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. We are family. That family motif shows up again. God is our father. And as father, God is, he is this loving protector. 
but he is also a judge. And in the first century world that Peter was writing to, this would have been a very, very familiar dynamic. Because fathers were these protectors and heads of household, but they also were the final disciplinary authority over their children and everyone else a part of their household. And those images of of loving father and final authority, they were not at odds with one another. For example, whenever I played Mortal Kombat and I broke the family code, there was discipline that followed. But it wasn't discipline or judgment based off of spite. You see, my parents had a vision for my life. They were concerned about my heart and about my mind. And in order to support that vision of who I would become, they utilized judgment to encourage good behavior, to follow the code. And the same thing is true when it comes to God. He is loving Father. He is perfect protector. But He is also the judge. And those two images are not at odds with one another. God has a vision for our lives. There is a character he seeks to cultivate within us. It's a, a character of holiness and uprightness, of justice, of graciousness, of compassion, of love. And in order to facilitate that development and growth within us, he uses his judgment as motivation. In his mercy, he has given us plenty of knowledge and forewarning. There's a day coming. There's a judgment that we all will stand before him and experience. It's not a surprise. It's kind of like final exams. Everybody knows what day final exams are on. There's a lot of warning and foreknowledge, or a lot of of information given out beforehand. If you show up to class and are surprised to find out that final exams are happening today, you have no one to blame but yourself. And the same is true with God's judgment. He has given us plenty of forewarning and insight. This is happening, guys. So prepare. Live accordingly so you have nothing to fear. And do you notice the nature of this judgment that Peter tells us? It is impartial. There is no favoritism. It doesn't matter if if you have oodles of money or no money. It doesn't matter if you're loved by the world or despised by the world. It doesn't matter if you have lots of influence and power or absolutely none at all. There is no favoritism. It also doesn't matter if you call yourself a part of God's family. There is no favoritism. If you look like the world, you will be judged as the world. If you do not live in holiness, you will be judged as if you did not live and holiness. And we might say, well, what about forgiveness of sins? What about grace? Isn't that what the gospel's all about? And it absolutely is. It is this wonderful gift of forgiveness that sets us free, but not free to pursue the greatest things of the world. The gospel sets us free to pursue things greater than the world. Peter puts it so good. In Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16, he says, Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. We have been set free to pursue our Father, to live free of sin, to pursue holiness, to be exiles in this world, not to indulge in all the revelries of a world that is perishing, spoiling, and fading. And this recognition that there is this authority, there's this judgment, that is inevitably coming. It should spark a a healthy kind of a fear in us. 
A fear of the Lord, it's sometimes called. And this is not abject terror. This is not dread of this impending court date that awaits us. But it's the kind of healthy fear that obedient children have for the Father. I, uh, growing up, my dad was always a very laid-back guy. He's just very easygoing, very difficult to get riled up about anything. And my mom was oftentimes the disciplinarian in our house. And so I preferred to get in trouble with my dad because I believed he wasn't very good at it. Um, he would sit me down and we would have a talk about what I did wrong and what I could do better. And that was it. We are done. All right, Dad, I promise I'll never do that again. And off we went. That's what I thought. Until I learned that there are certain lines that you just don't cross when it comes to Dad. Because when you do, that easygoing, laid-back guy, he disappears. And the judge comes out. And his justice is swift, unwavering, and very loud. And it didn't happen very often, mainly because after the first instance, I learned Dad was not the easy one to deal with. And there was this healthy fear, this respect, that kept me in check. And that's the place of a healthy fear, a reverential fear of the Lord. Understanding He is a loving Father. He is compassionate. He is this great protector. But He is also this final authority. This dispenser of impartial justice. And there's a healthy fear that keeps obedient children in check. If you want to maintain distinction in this world and resist this temptation of conformity, remember that there is a greater authority that we answer to. And remember this last one as well. There's a greater Savior that we cling to. And maybe this is the greatest motivation. It's not one of reward. It's not one of, of respect. It's not one of healthy fear. It's one of gratitude. Listen to how Peter puts it in verse 18. He says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and your hope are in God. Peter's not dumb. He's writing to a group of people that he knows full well are experiencing hardship and difficulties. And he knows the pressure to conform. I mean, you got to remember, this is a guy who sat around a fire on the night that Jesus was betrayed and denied even knowing him for fear of the fallout. Not just once, not just twice, but three times. Peter understands how hard it is to be the kid that doesn't raise your hand when everybody else is. But he also understands the greater things and the greater power that are with us and help us live as exiles distinct in this world. He writes to these ancient people about their former way of life. They, they were pagans. They worshipped the gods of their world, the gods of their culture, what was expected of them by the general public. And it didn't produce anything that lasted. It didn't lead to a knowledge of God. It didn't lead to the truth. It didn't lead to life. It produced that which perishes, spoils, and fades. And you and I don't live in too terribly of a different world. 
The gods take a different form. They, they go by different names. They're still there. Sometimes they go by the name of, of entertainment. Sometimes it's the name net worth. Sometimes these gods parade around in, in the, the form of different social media platforms, different social justice ideologies, different political parties. The names are different, but they still demand allegiance, and they still demand our attention and our time. They still demand that we raise our hands with the rest of the class, even when we know the answer is wrong. And they still produce nothing of value, only that which perishes spoils and fades into nothingness. But there is a God who has offered something greater than that. And he took all the worthless things of this world, and in exchange, a redemption you might say, he gave us all of the great things that belong to those who walk faithfully with him. And it wasn't because we were so deserving or so wise. It was because of his incredible love that he saved us. And this redemption, this exchange, it wasn't purchased through silver or gold because even the most valuable things of this world are worthless before the great judge. But rather, this exchange was possible because of the perfect, unblemished, unsoiled blood of Jesus. It was given freely in exchange. He took all the junk and the emptiness, and we received all the fullness and the inheritance, and the greater things of being in God's people. He has saved us. You name one person, one entity, one agency in this world who has done that for us, who has given so much that is so undeserved and came at such great personal cost. I got nothing. No names. We have been saved, not by any king, politician, celebrity, athlete, business mogul. We've been saved by a greater Savior. That's who we cling to, and that's who we follow in this world. If you want to maintain your distinction, remember this. This is not our place. These are not our people. Their ways are not our ways. Their goals are not our goals. Their kingdoms are not our kingdoms. Their gods are not our gods. We have been redeemed and rescued from this world of emptiness and given infinitely greater things. Remember that. And don't raise your hands just because the rest of the class says right is wrong, good is oppressive. Or that God isn't worth trusting because he absolutely is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness. And we thank you for calling us. Though we belonged in this world and we, we fit in, you called us into a greater family. And though we became foreigners in this place and, and have sworn off its riches and its promises, we've gained so much more. We have life, your forgiveness, we have hope, living hope. And we are blessed to be called yours.
praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.